0: This episode is in partnership with Authority Magazine. Authority Magazine, a medium publication, is devoted to sharing in-depth and interesting interviews featuring people who are authorities in business, pop culture, wellness, social impact, and tech.
1: There are a few artists in this world who The mere mention of their name conjures up visions and memories.
0: And of course, one of those musicians was Eddie Van Halen. One note, and you know exactly who it is playing.
1: Well, today we meet music journalist Steve Rosen, who not only spent some two decades interviewing Eddie, he was also the traveling wordsmith for almost every known rock band you can name. Steve, welcome to Believe in People.
2: Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Very cool to be here. Appreciate it very much.
1: Well, okay. I'm going to ask the very obvious question, Steve, but I know that our viewers and listeners want to know, how'd you get started as a music journalist?
2: An abbreviated version here. Um, I actually began writing for a high school newspaper. I had the first music oriented column uh, in the whole history of Culver City High School. Uh, before that, every, every story in a little, you know, the high school newspaper had to be school oriented. But I, I, I told Mrs. Carpenter, my journalism 101 teacher, listen, I, I'd like to go out to clubs and, you know, see if I could review bands and maybe review albums. And she said, yes, go ahead. So the seed was planted there. Um, I mean, I, I love doing that. You know, I mean, I'll be honest. I love seeing my little name in the, in the byline, you know, and. Kids that would never talk to me before was, oh, you were at the whiskey and you saw, you know, and I thought, there's something happening here, you know. So fast forward a little bit. Um, um, I just started sending out, you know, like reviews to all of the magazines, newspapers I could think of. You know, I sent a review to uh, Rolling Stone and Guitar Player and Cream and Circus and other publications around at the time. And I was rejected by everybody. Um, but, but there was a little bit of positive input, you know, listen, we, we like your, we like your story. It's not quite right. Send us another one. So using that as an impetus, you know, you, you, you keep going. Eventually I get uh, a, a little story printed in the, um, Los Angeles free press, which is a really hip kind of underground newspaper, uh, at the time, sort of, you know, late sixties, early seventies. I had a little review in there and you use that as a stepping stone and from there, um, uh, the doors were opened for me from, from this wonderful woman, Lydia Woltag, who worked at a company called Gibson and Stromberg. They were like the first rock and roll publicity company and they handled a bunch of bands. I mean, Jeff Beck and the Stones and Steely Dan. And they just embraced me, the new kid and, uh, you know, made all these bands available. So they actually introduced me to Guitar Player magazine. I started writing for Guitar Player in December 73. That sort of led to ultimately, you know, getting things in Rolling Stone and Cream and Circus and all these publications who had initially said no. And it just kind of went from there. Uh, in 78, I wrote my first book on Death Beck, which came out in Japan, would write books on, on Black Sabbath and, um, free and bad company, Prince, Springsteen, and wrote a lot for Asian publications, Japan, uh, European, publications, Italy and Germany and France, UK. And um, yeah, it, it just, I've always loved to write. I've loved music. I was a guitar player and I thought kind of the music journalism thing as a way to kind of tie everything together.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about, um, you have a book about Eddie Van Halen. I do. Um, and you have a rather, ex- you had a rather extensive relationship with him. Why don't you, uh, can you tell us, um, Tell us how you that all came to be I mean that sounds that really sounds like a young rock critic's dream come true
2: it it, it really was and you know i'm i'm not a I'm not a big believer in kind of destiny, that kind of thing. I think you kind of make your own way in this world but um that being said it's June nineteen seventy seven I go to the whiskey. Um, the famous club on the Sunset Strip. And, um, uh, I'm there to see Cheap Trick record a live record. Um, I went to the whiskey a lot back in those days. Um, but on, on this particular night, I, I almost wasn't going to go. And my brother was kind of a Cheap Trick fan. So I thought, yeah, let's, let's go to the whiskey. So we go, um, Michelle Meyer, who is, uh, the girl who booked the whiskey. Um, I knew Michelle. She's this wonderful, Yenta-like personality who had her fingers on everything that was anything worthwhile in Hollywood. And she knew I was writing for Guitar mag, So she said, listen, there's this guy you have to meet. You know, he's upstairs in a dressing room. So she answers my brother and I upstairs. And I see this guy standing in the corner. And you have to understand, this is 77. Um, their first record would not be out until February '78. They had been playing the whiskey and they played the Starwood, another club in Hollywood. Um, but not that much was known about them. It was known that they had scored a big record deal for Warner Brothers Records. Um, but but it's not like there were a lot of photos around and you couldn't, like, go look in magazines to find stories because they didn't exist. Um, so I I think that I recognized Edward standing in the corner when we walked up into the dressing room. Um, but that could just be, you know, me rewriting history. I mean, I, I maybe seen his photo on the, all the flyers that the band used to put up and down the, on the street lamps in, in Hollywood. So and then, anyway, Michelle walks me over and introduces me to Edgar Van Halen, Steve know, and we just start talking. And it's, it's one of those amazing conversations. And, uh, you know, it feels like a conversation that was sort of begun earlier. And you're just kind of continuing this conversation, you know. And I just felt this connection with this guy. And he loved all the same music and all the same guitar players that I love. Eric Clapton was his biggest influence. I loved Eric Clapton. I mean, I knew every lick, every riff Eric Clapton had ever played. And, uh, you know, uh, Edward was a big Richie Blackmore fan. And I loved Blackmore. And Jeff Beck. And we just had this conversation and it was amazing. And yeah, I mean, part of me, you know, again, thinks about serendipity and, and synchronicity and, and, and destiny. And I almost didn't go that night. And I mm-hmm. wondered, well, what if I hadn't have gone? You know, would the, con- would the relationship have, 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 have happened? Um, and it was luck. And, and he thought he felt something in me that, that he felt comfortable with and, Um, he trusted and he had this respect for me. And obviously I respected this guy, Uh, you know, his, his talent was just remarkable. He was, you know, he was once in a generation and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a rock and roll journalist dream come true, you know? No kidding. No
1: kidding. And Steve, so you did uh, 50 interviews um, with, Eddie over the course of 26 years. Okay. So, um, what surprised you about him and because you knew him so intimately and tell us like when you, you know, when did you have those conversations? I watched a couple of videos, um, oh. that you recorded, I mean, you know, three in the morning conversations. So yeah, tell us about right.
2: that. So I was interviewing Edward, uh, for the magazines I was writing for a uh, specifically guitar world. I did three covers on Edward, uh, for Guitar World, plus a lot of major features. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and, but beyond those, um, as you referenced, Amy, were these conversations that I've typified as Twilight tapes, Because normally Edward would call me at two or three in the morning, four in the morning, and he wanted to talk. And sometimes it was about music, more times than not it wasn't. And these were the, the, the kind of the deeper dive conversations, um, and when I realized and I write in the book, I, I had forgotten about those conversations. They actually truly resided in this binder of interviews. And I didn't know what they were until I started working on the book. And I, I opened this binder up and I see these tapes kind of cryptically marked. And I put one on. Um, and it, it just happened to be queued up at this thing where Edward is saying, my dad thinks I'm a genius. And I can hear Edward breaking up. I can hear him crying, basically. His father had passed away. Um by that point. And at that point I go, Oh my God, this is, this is special. Um, so what can I tell you about Edward? That was unexpected. Um, um he, he had an extraordinary self-awareness. He knew was, he knew he was a very, very, very good guitar player, but, but he had a very, a very kind of a minimal ego. I mean, he would never say to me, Oh man, that was the great, it was a great solo I played, man. And, oh, that guitar player, you know, he could never, you know, he would never be as good as I was. He never talked like that, but he just knew how, how very good he was, which is a pretty, a pretty amazing thing to think when the world's looking at you as, as the greatest guitar player, living guitar player. I mean, he was a legend in his own time. So that was pretty amazing. Um Really, he was, he was really supportive of me. I mean, I tended to go, not dark, but, you know, I'd be like, look, I was a guitar player. I looked at what he had achieved, and I think, my God, if I could have had a, a 50th of that, you know, so from time to time, I go, oh, Ed, you know, I'm trying to write, you know, and not that I ever had that talent. I'm not saying that, but I wanted to be a guitar player in a rock and roll band, and he was always so cool about it, man, and, and you know, he, he became like a teacher, and, you know, he'd just say these wonderful, uplifting things when I knew that he was going through turmoil with the band or or band politics were, were kind of falling apart. Um um he he was he was kind of a modest guy. He, he didn't really like doing interviews. If he didn't really go out a lot, you didn't see Edward, you know, kind of hanging out at parties a lot. Um yeah, he, he was just been a, marking, a remarkably complex guy. It took me 580 pages to kind of Think that I kind of answered those questions and and in, in, in describing who he was, I hope hopefully I I got it right. Hopefully I I paint that portrait of him, but but there was a lot of it I, I was never able to get um, you know um unfortunately.
0: But well, that's you know. I mean, what are the impressions? And of course, I never met him, and I listened to his music, but but I saw the we all saw the persona, uh, one that you've just sort of described. And in a world uh, at that time, in a world of sort of turbocharged egos, Mm -hmm. and a lot of glam going on in that kind of world as well. um, You know, he did act with his guitar, um, primarily because that was his, his craft, obviously, and he was very good at it. And it was almost as if, he was kind of putting that other stuff on. Now, I mean, what with you know the the, the tight pants and all that kind of shit, you know. Uh, but I wanted to ask you because his you know his family emigrated uh, to the United States. Uh, he, he his parents uh, came from two different cultures, uh, basically a, a mixed race style of kind of marriage. Uh, do you think that you know somehow deep down inside of him? That kind of formed who he was, even as a performer, as a person. When you when you talk about just how kind of gentle he was,
2: I mean that's a that's a wonderful question, Kevin. I really wish those were one of the areas I wanted to talk to him more about. Let me let me digress for two minutes here. In 1985, um, I was going to write Edward's authorized biography. I approached Ed and I said, Ed, listen, man. Writers are going to come to you. They're going to want to write your life story. I, I'd like to be the person to write there and write that, write that story. And he said, yes, of course it was, it would be you. Who else would it be? And that was, that was remarkable to hear him say that. We signed simple little contracts and literally for the next three years, I, um, uh, I did a lot of interviews, um, uh, with friends of his from Pasadena, um, you know, guys who were who were promoting shows with Van Halen back in Pasadena, um, musicians he had played with, guitar tech. Um, um, and I was trying to put that all together. And what I wanted to do was sit down with him and say, Ed, and I said this on many occasions, Ed, listen, you and I have to sit down, you know, I I, I need to interview you. I need to know more about, you know, that dynamic between you and your family. And how did you know, growing up in the in, in in Europe, you know, affect who you were in coming here and not speaking the language and all those things you touched on. I you know, I, I realized how critical they were. I never had that opportunity. Ed never wanted to sit and do those interviews. He always told me, well, you know, now is not the right time to do a book. if i if I do a book now, people are going to think my career is over. <laughs> like go oh, ahead, you're the only person on this planet who would ever think that way. But in answer to your question, Kevin, the little bit that we sort of touched on that, um, I do believe that had a lot to do with him. Um, his dad was a musician, a working musician who played with a lot of orchestras over in Europe, uh, did a lot of radio broadcasts. Um, and I know that was a major influence uh, on Edward. And I think his dad doing that had a profound effect on him. Yes. And I think Edward did have a sort of a, an artist slash European heart. Um, that that made him come out in this very kind of less egocentric, more sensitive way. Um, when he was on stage, he was this monster presence. Um, but that was just him on stage. He was very comfortable on stage, but that's not who he was. Off stage, you know, he didn't dress in the striped pants. You know, he dressed. He always dressed nice, and any clothes he wore always looked amazing on him. But you know, he dressed in jeans and t-shirts. Uh, and he was pretty quiet. Um, uh, none of that, none of that, uh, outsized thing that you ever saw on stage. So, yes, I think that, I think growing up, uh, in that household, um, in, in, uh, Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands, um, had a, had a huge effect on him. I wish I could have spoken to him more about that.
1: And Steve, um, that's, is that your book, Tone Chaser? It is. That's the book tone. And so, and then when did you, what happened with your relationship? But when did you, and then I want to get into all the other bands you were wordsmithing to, but what, um, tell us about that. Did you, was there an end or was there a, you know, just a smooth sort of, uh, a depart, departure? What was that? What happened?
2: So I meet Edward in 77. Um, um, and, and to answer your question, Amy, um, I again I did meet him before the first record came out. Um and right after that, I mean his ascent into into stardom was very rapid. But because I think I, I did meet him before the record came out and before he was Eddie Van Halen, this 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 monster guitar player, I think that had a lot to do with the um sort of the relationship itself, that I knew him before he was this, you know, this other person. Um
0: interviewed him many
2: times um and i don't want to give the book away but um edward started changing um i noticed it as early as the as the early 90s he he just became a different person you know and i've talked to a lot of people um um and they said well you know uh a new manager came in um the band were going through changes you know um i mean they they provide a lot of, of, of answers that they think may have caused his change. I don't know. I've, I've tried to answer that question in the book. Um, um, he changed, he changed a lot. Um, in 2003, uh, I had my last conversation with him and it was very sad. It was depressing. Um, um, he said some pretty terrible things to me. um, by then, um, everybody knew Edward was very sick, very, very, very sick by 2003. Um, the band, uh, was not in good shape. Um, I think they had lost their, their record deal. Um, the marriage, his marriage to Valerie Bertinelli was not good. Um, there was drug, you know, um, right after that, uh, there are pictures of Ed looking really unhealthy, um, torn jeans and tennis shoes with no, uh, laces and a hair on a samurai bun and looking disheveled. And it, it, it was, it was horrific. Um, but yeah, no, it, it ended, uh, in a bang, not a whimper, uh, uh, unfortunately. And, you know, for the 17 years from the last time I spoke to him to the, when I began the book actually on my birth birthday, August 24th, 2020, um, I thought about him a lot. Um, uh, I had reached out to him several um, times—some emails, a phone call. Um, I never heard back. um, You know. um, And then, about six weeks after I began the book, uh, he passed away. So uh, it really uh, left left a lot of questions unanswered, unfortunately. Um, But uh, you know, I tried to write about that as honestly as I could in the book. Um, So
0: when you are practicing your craft be it with van halen or any of the others led zeppelin or jimmy page or jeff beck or uh, obviously uh, clapton uh, all of the people that you uh uh, seem to uh, migrate uh or towards happen to be great guitar players which i don't think is a coincidence how do you um how do you get how do you get those nuggets Out of them, how how do you approach it? Obviously, you don't show up uh, like you know Jimmy Olsen or something with a little pad in your hand with a pen. How do these people are guarded? A lot of, I mean, guarded in many ways. They're guarded with their personality. They're guarded by security. Um, You know, we've we've all, you know, a lot of us saw the film. uh, You know, that Led Zeppelin film, uh, whatever the heck it's. uh,
2: the song remains
0: the same, yeah, yeah, sorry. I was having a mental breakdown. You know it, it it's a bubble. How does someone like you pierce that bubble? Well, that's a great question. You know
2: I, I I think it's I think it was a few different pieces. I'd always loved music. Before I started writing, I had a I had a big record collection. Before I ever started writing, and once I started writing, one of the perks of being a rock and roll journalist uh, back in the day was you were now on all of the mailing list for all the labels. So every month I was receiving all the all the records from Warner's and Capitol and MCA and RCA. So my my record collection grew. But before before getting these free records. The, you know, some of the rock and roll swag, I had a monster record collector. I mean, I had all the Jeff Beck records and Jeff Call and Spirit and Cream. And, you know, I love listening to music. I was a guitar player. So I was always focused on the guitar player. I was a pretty voracious reader, even early on, uh, you know, even back in elementary school, I can I, I can remember learning how to read. I can remember that moment when I could, I recognized the words and I could put them together. and I, that, that to me was a, a, a true revelation. Uh, I love to read, um, and I love to write. Um, you know, I love kind of like doing term papers and writing papers and typing out my little, you know, uh, history papers. So I think all those elements came together. And when I was in a room with um, Jeff Beck, look, Jeff Beck was my hero. I mean, I would have, I would have paid you money to have sat in a room with Jeff Beck. I would have gone in there for free. In a heartbeat to have met Jeff Beck. So to sit there on a, on a, in a bed at the, in the Continental Hyatt house and, and talk to Jeff Beck, it was, it, it was beyond, you, you know, a fantasy for me. And I think what comes across in my interviews, um, and I don't think it was content, conscious was a combination of all those things. Understanding how lucky and how rare it was sitting in there in a room with that artist, um, Trying not to cross the line of being the crazy fan nerd boy, but just having just this ultimate respect of, of thinking, you know, I play guitar, not, never in a million years would I be able to approach what you do, but please tell me what it is you do and know that what you tell me, I'm, I'm breathing in every word. And that seems to have come across for, for the interviews. And I literally interviewed guys for five decades. I began writing in 73, and it really ended mm, about four or five years ago, maybe just sort of 50 years. And it, it was just, just this natural thing. And I was always nervous, even if I'd been writing for 30 or 40 years, you know, I was always nervous walking in there. Or or later on, it, it would become phone interviews, which were a little less personal and a little bit more challenging. But I think these guys sensed it. I also did my homework. And it, it wasn't Jimmy Olsen. Well, yes. Uh, um, you know, Peter Frampton on the fourth record you played, you know, it wasn't like that it was me doing a deeper dive and Peter, man, you played that great phrase, the beginning of the solo and that leads into the B. I I mean, I think they understood immediately that I, that I was musically inclined, I understood songwriting, I understood guitar playing so I believe it was all those elements, you know, and I yeah. thought I think that's what I brought that was maybe different from other writers who had who were much better writers than me and had more technical, you know, journalism expertise, but they didn't have that other thing that I, that I believed I had. So
1: Yeah. And the passion too, Steve. I mean, if you think about what you, so, I mean, you were, you were, I mean, let's mention Led Zeppelin, The Who, Deep Purple, Jethro Tull, I mean, the ZZ Top, Aerosmith, Lenny Kravitz, Alice Cooper, there's so many. And you mentioned about Van Halen and you said, you know he changed over the years, so I, I kind of want to know. Tell us, mere mortals, and I I say that what's what is there? What's behind the curtain? Like, are people just people, or you know, when they receive such fame, um, does it does it dramatically change who they are?
2: I can say yes, it does. Um, for a while there, I think Edward, and I'm speak, speaking specifically of Edward. I've seen it in other, I've seen it happen to other bands. Um, not that I've spent the kind of time with the other bands that I did with Edward, but there are bands that I've interviewed many times. And the first time I'd interview them, it's like, you know, maybe the first record would come out and they were open and they were obliging. And then the second record, depending on the success of the first record, you know, it was a little bit of a change. Nothing specific, nothing that you could put your fingers on, but there was definitely a change. With Edward, I can tell you that the first record, the first tour, maybe even the second record, the second tour, he was king of the world. He was jubilant, he was joyful. He was just this unleashed fury. Um, I think he enjoyed every minute of it, going on the road and touring, recording. Um, early on, there were problems with the band. Um, that he would tell me about. And then he'd say, don't write about that. Don't print that. Because in the moment when he's recording a second record, he doesn't want me writing about that. There were problems with the band by the second record. So all of those things he told me were put on tape and and wouldn't come out until my book. And the reason they came out my book is because they they do tell the story with him. And, and I believe that they had to be part of the book. But in answer to your question, Amy, um, yeah, that that pressure starts coming. And it becomes an internal thing, too. Um, um, y- you know, you come out with a, a first record, and it's hailed as one of the, the greatest rock and roll guitar records ever. So it's like, you mean to tell me that you're totally oblivious to that, and you're, you're not listening to what your label is saying? And it, it, it's untrue. And I could see it with Edward, and he was an extraordinary holistic guy. So on the second record, I don't think it, 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 it hit him. But, you know, you, you go further further down the um, catalog and there are a lot more covers happening. Their covers were, were pretty amazing. But why were there covers if, if, you know, Edward was writing all these songs and being prolific? And I think some of that pressure came from the label. Um, he felt the pressure. Um, the, the politics internally were happening. Um, yeah, I could see him yeah being a little bit more morose and somber about things um yeah you know you know whoever is up above in the heavens he he says to this guy everben halen i am going to i'm going to make you i'm going to give you magic you know but on the other side of that you know with all the success is going to come this other thing you know and you're going to have to learn to deal with that and i think ultimately that that really became a burden with him Huh. Just very quickly, one last thing here. Why do so many, and, and, and it happens to writers and painters as well, and maybe it's just a creative thing, why do so many of these supremely gifted individuals succumb to, to alcohol and drinks and drugs, sorry, alcohol and drugs, um, with the onset of success? You mean to tell me if these people were absolutely happy with the success and could deal with it, that, that has nothing to do with the other thing, I don't believe that. Um, and maybe that's the price you pay for ultimate creativity. I don't think I believe that either. But it happens to so many of them that I have to think that there's a correlation. So.
0: Well, this sort of brings us full circle and, uh, and to the end of our half hour. Um, and I do want to ask you this uh, question. Uh, because you have been so close to it and you've just so so adroitly described sort of the pressures that go on when you are gifted and when you are creating something that is so new and in such demand. After all you have experienced and the joy that you have received from listening to the music and meeting those people that create it, um, and yet you have also seen the other side of it, the downside, the dark side, Why do you still believe in it? Why do you believe in these creative people? We ask this question every week. Why do you believe in people?
2: Because these people are doing something so extraordinary that is beyond the capabilities of of most of the people on this planet. Um, You know, art, you know, I won't even begin to get into a definition of art. I have no doubt that you two, are way more capable than me. But I can tell you these musicians, there's just something so unique, so special about them, so rare that it, it, it's just, it's just not a coincidence that, that these individuals, the rest of the world look at them as, as these unique creatures. They, they what they create, um, and, and being a little bit of a guitar player and, and being able to understand on, on just a, a little bit of a level of, of what they create. It's, it's like, it, it's just astounding to me. And every time I put on a Jeff Beck record or a Van Halen record or a Spirit record, I, I, I mean, it's like, I am just awed all over again. Um, um, they, they are just a rare breed. And, um, um, yeah, man, uh, Human beings continue to create, um, and, it, and it's amazing to me that they do. The world is a different place than it was when I was listening to guitar players in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, you know, the, the way you make music is different, um, you know, and, and, and it's digital, and a lot of bands make music long distance. They're not even in the same room anymore. Um, but these people continue to create, They they continue to believe in the craft and the artistry. Um, and that will that will never end, you know. Uh, no matter well, what we, else is so. going.
1: Thank you so much. You know, Steve, you're a rare breed, and we really appreciate you and you sharing your stories. And and I mean, I can hear it. You're reliving all of your wonderful experiences and adventures in your t- telling of the story. So thank you for that.
0: Very welcome. As a matter of fact, as you're talking about how these these things progress over generations, um, I just want to throw out there that the Rolling Stones have a new record and they're going on go. tour. So there, you just we've they've just made your point for you a hundred times over. So
2: exactly, <laughs> like Mick Jagger needs to go out at eighty-two years old or whatever he is. I mean,
1: I'm inspired. He love it. I'm inspired.
2: There you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Thank guys. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks, guys. See you later.
0: Bye. Take care. Peace and love. <laughs> you know, one of the things I I I think that we sort of underestimate is that the talent uh the talent pool in those early days when rock and roll sort of came out of the elvis era and all those kinds of things and became and the guitar players just became such gods guitar gods that's how they were referred to you know um to have someone like steve there sort of deciphering all of that for us uh it was what a great conversation what a blessing to have had him on and uh and it's true the pressures of the business uh, must really wreak havoc with one's creativity, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think with Steve too, I mean, you could just hear, he re- he's reliving his experiences. And I just mentioned, you know, when we were talking to him, his journey, And that's inspiring for him because, you know, he can, he lends himself. I mean, he wouldn't have, he was inspired to play guitar and, and to continue to play guitar. And he was mentored by whether he realized it or not by the world's best. So we can all learn from that. We can all, you know, realize don't give up. I mean, look where we, everybody started and just keep going. I think that's the message too, is to just. Keep doing what uh, you love, and clearly, this is something that Steve loved. So, if you uh, believe in hope and uh, inspiration, then please, we uh, we ask that you subscribe to our podcast, Believe in People. And thanks so much for joining us.
0: Rock on. <laughs>